0: Hello and welcome to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the 11th green at the Kindale course at Kenwood Country Club, high above the suburban Cincinnati skyline. And this is Season 3, Episode 16. Today I talk with golf course architect Jason Straco. Jason is one of the nicest, smartest, most unnecessarily humble people I met in 2021. And I was so struck by his work and his demeanor that I couldn't be more delighted to bring you our conversation today. Had the pleasure of meeting Jason at a media preview event at Kenwood Country Club, where he led the renovation of that club's Kindale course, uh, which I felt privileged to play last summer and which will host the new Queen City Classic LPGA event in 2022. We talk all about Kenwood, the renovation, and the tournament. I'm aware that this is a course that very few of you will likely ever see or play, but I think you'll enjoy what you see of the course on the television when the ladies' professional tour comes to Cincinnati a little later this year. Jason is as well-credentialed as he is talented, having twice graduated from Cornell, among his other academic and professional educational pursuits and accomplishments. Seriously, reading his CV is simultaneously impressive and exhausting, which speaks to how seriously he approaches environmental sustainability and stewardship within the context of his golf course designs. Frankly, it's a little embarrassing looking back at my notes on the interview because I got so caught up in listening to what Jason was talking about that I failed to follow up on more than a handful of interesting questions I had. Maybe next time. Regardless, I think it's a little bit something different for this show that I know you're going to enjoy. Before that, remember that you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at Pod as well as over on Instagram. There are links in the show notes to the Frystrakka website, where you can find information about Jason's background and his firm's impressive portfolio, both past, present, and future. A reminder that while this show is a proud member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows under the benevolent monarchy of Rod Morey, this Blind Shots podcast is sponsored exclusively by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also work with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in Central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you've got a real estate question, If you're wondering how to invest in real estate in an inflationary market, reach out to me and we can get a conversation started. And now my conversation with Jason Stryker. In addition to, well, I guess as part of your design career and being an architect, you're also uh, very hands-on into the turf grass side of the business. Uh, with an eye on sort of the environmental side of things and sustainability. That's one of your big initiatives. How did that develop for you? Can you tell me a little bit about that part of your journey?
1: It really started when I was young because I grew up in a fairly rural area of Northeast Ohio, close to urban areas, but where, where where my folks lived was pretty rural. And so You know, I mean, it's, uh, I think the closest, you know, friend that I had, uh, you know, was probably a mile away, right? So it wasn't like I was going to go play with the neighborhood kids all the time. And, uh, you know, because of that, I mean, it was, um, we had three farm ponds in the backyard. I could go fishing anytime I want when friends did come over. I mean, that's, you know, either played football or went fishing or, Um, you know, hit golf shots around the yard, Uh, I'd come home, you know, I grew up bird hunting and doing those types of things, and so, you know, kids now, it's different, they'd come home and play video games, I'd go, you know, grab my twenty-two and go hunting for an hour, that's just sort of what it was, I mean, it was, so it was very different, I loved it, you know, of course, you know, you don't, you don't really know any other world at that point, but I became i just love the outdoors i mean i just go for a walk in the woods because it was you know it was peaceful and i just loved it and so um you know as i started to get older and played golf and you know started to think about what you want to do with your life you know i guess i was one of those uh kids you know odd in the fact that i sort of knew what i wanted and i said boy if i can really marry architecture design golf outdoors um, you know, that would make a really interesting career and, uh, and it has, and that's really, that was impetus
0: for it. How does the, with the kind of the importance of sustainability and, you know, that's and resource conservation, how does that influence or, or frame projects for you? Maybe a little differently than, than how people might expect that, a, that a golf course architect or designer would approach things.
1: So my, uh, David, my master's thesis was on a place called uh, Widow's Walk. And my mentor, of course, being, you know, Mike Hurdzen, who had a background in, in, in environmental turf grass physiology. You know, that's a mouthful, right? <laughs> uh, you know, so, I mean, he had, you know, similar, similar passions and similar, um, you know, ideals with what golf could be. And so, uh, you know, I really wanted to marry the two. And, um, you know, as I was going through university, going through college, A lot of my classes were also natural resource classes, wetland science classes, for a number of reasons. You know, for one, I wanted to have a better understanding of, you know, so many developers would just say, oh, wetlands, we got to deal with those things again. How come we can't fill them? You know, for me, I really wanted, and because I appreciated what they were, right, how they fit in the natural environment, you know, the species of plants and animals that they would support and how they would help, you know, humanity. I mean, and so people started to learn how important they were. I'm like, well, from a golf perspective, I really want to be able to protect them, enhance them, Can I recreate them, you know, in places or maybe it's a degraded site. And so, you know, that became, you know, that study or that aspect to it. And I, of course, I knew, you know, from those days, um, you know, some of your listeners, um, you know, might know a book that was written uh, called Silent Spring. And that was really sort of the beginning of the environmental movement in the United States. Uh, you know, about uh, steering away from using DDT and other things like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about how that had an impact on everybody's life, not just golf, but everybody's life. And so, um, you know, if we can, again, you marry those two of them and and do a really good job of protecting the environment. And also, hey, listen, David, I mean, this, I'm sure that one of the reasons you love to play golf and so many of your listeners are, is that you like being in outdoors, right? you like listening to the birds, you like, you know, hearing the water and, you know, and so it, even though that you're in a semi built environment, you know, that's one of the reasons you like to be out there. And if I can even make a better golf experience because we protected the environment, then so much the better. So there's there's a really a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, another aspect actually is that I also wanted to do service on the developer side of things because some, so many times, Projects do get shut down because it's an emotional response, not a scientific one. And so, you know, say, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that. Or, you know, they'll use emotional fear to get a a community all worked up against a project. You know, when in fact there's no scientific basis for it. I wanted to have that scientific basis so I can stand in front of people and say, you know, listen, uh, you know, what you're hearing is an emotional response. Let me tell you what the reality is. And don't just take my word for it. Let's go get the research that shows it. And, you know, we've, we've done that successfully many times too.
0: How much better a job does golf do telling that story now, as opposed to when you entered the industry?
1: Uh, You know, much better. Um, But I will say that if I had one, any, you know, any one big criticism and is that we talk to our own constituents a lot. So, uh, you know, that's was interesting because when I became president of the American uh, Society of Golf Course Architects, I said, you know, what are some of the big things that you want to do? And I said, one of the things I want to do is to reach out out of the golf industry, right? So architects will talk to superintendents, superintendents talk to general managers, right? So we all sort of talk to each other or, you know, we'll they'll focus on sending a message to golfers specifically, but we don't do a good job of and, you know, as to reach out to the 90 some percent of people that don't play golf.
0: Right. Yeah, we we, message. we are in violent agreement, but right. The, the everybody else doesn't know that story. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you are ASGCA president you're serving right now. Um, that is a big honor, but it also usually is a thankless job. What do you <laughs> what do you wish you knew then that, you know, now?
1: I don't know because all of that that chapter hasn't been written yet. Okay. Right? So I'm only uh what about four months into this so far. So I've got a little ways to go. Um you know it's been uh I I love it. I thrive off of it. You know, I volunteered my time for you know a couple of decades now. So I sort of have an idea, you know, of what you're getting into. Uh you know, I will say um, I did learn an interesting lesson recently, uh, and it was a media one. And it was um, there was an article that came out in CNN and I was doing an interview, uh, not not dissimilar to this one, uh, but the gentleman said uh, it was actually for a, a trade organization. So within golf and you happen to say, you know, I'm writing for CNN uh, as well. This would make a really interesting topic you know, would you mind if we turn this into, uh, you know, a national article? I said, well, my God, this would be great because, again, this is the reaching out to the 90% of the people, right? and it was about golf and climate change. Well, what ended up happening was that that gentleman turned it into the editors. There were a number of editors that were anti-golf, took the article, rewrote it for him, still kept his name on it, and stuck it on the front page of CNN.com. Right. (laughs) Right. And I went, oh, my God. And so, of course, now what happened is that on social media, I had colleagues and, you know, people within the industry going, oh, my God, Jason should know better. Uh, You know, he shouldn't have participated in this. Other colleagues are like, listen, there was no question. He had no idea that this was what was going to happen. And of course, it's what did. I jumped to the conclusion that I got sabotaged by the by the author when come to find out. They just took his, you know, his article and rewrote it. They ended up pulling his name off of it after he put up a big fuss about it. They refused to pull the article down. And uh, and I said, well, I said, I guess a couple of things, you know, one of which is that probably should bet a little harder Uh, 2 don't jump to, you know, thinking some of my colleagues don't jump to conclusions. Me, I shouldn't have jumped to the conclusion that it was the author of the, the article, you know, that did a disservice. So I said, okay, so Partly, I use it to educate everybody, you know, about, first off, you know, you hear, don't always believe what you read on the internet, Right. do your research and find out, um, number one, right? Number two, uh, you know, bad, uh, I was going to say, you know, bad media, you know, they'll use that as an article. The third thing was, is that, you know, and probably foremost for me, don't jump to conclusions either of, you know, whose fault it was, so shame on me, I learned that. Uh, but then on the other side of it is, is that I ended up getting contacted by so many different groups who picked up on it. So um, two weeks ago, I did a live bid on the weather channel, and they ran it multiple times about golf and, and the climate change and and how we can actually have a better impact, you know, or we're, we're having a positive impact on climate change. I was on a group called Newsy, uh, I've got an interview later today, you know, about it. So there was a lot of good that ended up coming out of it. but. Those are one of those things. Like, if I wish, you know, if, you know, if I wish I could step backwards, what would I have changed? Type of thing. That that would be one of them.
0: Well, I'm not sophisticated enough to mess this up or to take your words out of context. So you're you're among friends here. No problem. <laughs> um, you know, a, a, a transition. I'll segue into this. Um, you serving as president of the organization. Uh, that's a seat that was once occupied by William Diddle. Uh, Bill Diddle, who is kind of a a legendary, if underappreciated figure in Midwestern golf, um, great athlete, great player, early designer. Um, He designed the Kendale course at Kenwood Country Club in Cincinnati, which is where uh, I was able to meet you. What drew you to that project, uh, being an an Ohio, Cincinnati area golf course?
1: So, uh, you know, I had played Kendale. They've done some remodels uh, in the past and which were um, you know, I don't know what kind of design charge, you know, uh, meaning directive that that, that particular designer was given. So it's not to be critical about that, but it wasn't very sympathetic to what the original design was. Uh, and of course, from an agronomic standpoint, they didn't really change. You know, they kept the these huge overplanted mature trees, which looked nothing like the original golf course, and had narrowed the fairways and. You know, I would find bunkers uh, shapes that would be uh, you know, 20 yards into the middle of uh, you know, trees or woods. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that starts to take away some of the strategy of it because you're losing the ability to have width to create angles. Uh, and so um, but I had played the golf courses um, because I have 36 that are there a number of times and was familiar with it. And, you know, as far as country clubs go, and maybe not necessarily golf clubs, but country clubs go. Um, You know Kenwood is right at the top of the list. You know, in all of their offerings and how long they've been, really, it was considered to be one of the first, if not if not first, thirty-six hole country club complex in the Midwest. So you know, after talking with the the club and you know listening to what their desires, wishes were, you know, it seemed like it became a good fit. um, And you know, super nice people to work with too.
0: It is. It's a remarkable facility. It's a for being kind of, I guess. It's in the urban core now because Cincinnati has grown out around it, but it is quite the oasis of green space and, uh, you know, in country club complex. It's not just a golf club, pools, tennis courts and all whatnot. Seeing the the club for the first time or seeing the course for the first time this summer, I was blown away. Uh, You mentioned kind of the, the width and angles of the strategy. I don't know that I've ever been in so many fairway bunkers like they were in they were literally it, I, we were I guess we were playing the correct tease because that was the decision on so many holes of the, the way the holes were framed. It was um, it was there a theme to the strategy or or were you able to kind of as you were discovering old features on the layout kind of decipher dill strategy and just maybe bring that into modern times.
1: Yeah, the latter is exactly what happened. And so, you know, a couple of things, one of which is that the golf course wasn't nearly as long as it is today. So as we started to, we you know, we we ended up, we found all of his original drawings, you know, both Green's drawings and, um, you know, going back. And then there was documented, certain documented changes going through because, of course, they've hosted the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Open, Western Open. So we are able to find pictures and drawings and photographs, all sorts of things, you know, to help us. Uh, but it actually, it sort of tickles me to hear about some of the fairway bunkers you were in. Because when we started, so many of those bunkers were were not in play. They were, um, you know, for a, anywhere from an average to a better golfer, uh, you know, that you're hitting past a lot of the ones that were still, that were there. Uh, or whether they were remnant bunkers or newer bunkers that were put in. And then the only people who were really getting into the bunkers were, you know, unsophisticated golfers. You know, new ones, ladies, you know, seniors and, you know, a lot of people that really don't need to be, you know, tasked with trying to hit recovery shots, they should just be going out and having fun and, you know, letting the ball down the fairway. Uh, And so, you know, it became a combination, David, of, okay, if we're going to add new tees for championships um, or if it's already been added in the past, you know, where do the old bunkers fall? Uh, and then uh, you know it's thankfully even though it's got great topography and you know it's not wasn't overly complicated that many cases we could take a bunker pattern that that bill diddle had and move it down 20 30 40 yards in some cases and put them back in the correct location so that it would create the exact strategy that he had intended
0: well you married that the, the original strategy in the the modern distance i thought great because it was great fun to play it has a a beautiful look. Now, talking with you that day and with the, the superintendent, who is now an emeritus position for Kenwood, um, talk to me about, it. there were a couple of really special things. The amount of trees that were removed. I mean, it's a beautiful looking golf course now because you have vistas across the entire playing field. And talk to me also on the backside about how you guys manage the turf on that project. That was something that was unique uh, that I think people would want to know about. Mm.
1: Yeah. So with with the trees, you know, because a lot, and this goes, you know, this is common in golf, but it's common in anybody's uh, landscape aesthetic, if you will. You know, you look at a, somebody who builds a new home, or you create a new development, and then people, you know, what happens is that they want to have it look, you know, somewhat mature as quickly as possible. So you would tend to, you know, overplant. I'm trying to, you know, tell your listeners, you know, an analogy, and so you go out into your landscape beds around your home and and you may put in, uh, you know, six, seven foot trees, and you want it to look, you know, mature, thick, and so you put in four. Where, you know, whereas in twenty and thirty and forty years, let alone a hundred years, you know, those trees are going to become six, seven, eight, nine times, you know, their size. And so, um, you know, if you don't, that's okay for the short term. But if you don't manage that as that vegetation matures, it becomes an overgrown jungle. And that's exactly what had happened on, on you know, at Kenwood, on Kendale, and in literally hundreds of Parkland golf courses around our country, because uh, it, it doesn't get managed as it matures. And so you became it being so thick that it caused two things, you know, one of which is that um, it became very difficult to hit recovery shots, right, because you had so many trees and so big trees. Uh, and so it limited, you know, the uh, ability, again, it, just the playability of it. And two is that it, then it becomes so dense that you can't get any water, any sun, and so you can't grow good grass. So typically, what ends up happening is that you know then rather than cut the trees, you know then the club many times will end up just narrowing the fairway. So it can't grow grass. So we'll just make the fairway narrower and make the rough narrower. Well, then you're creating a bowling alley effect, right? And now you've essentially you've taken away. Any strategy to the golf course, and you've just created a um, the skill set, which is just solely based on accuracy. And in some cases, you know, those trees, or the, if there's dog legs, it makes the dog legs too short. So you would find dog legs where, uh, you know, you'd have players who couldn't, you know, imagine hitting a four iron and then having to hit a three wood into a par four. You know, it should be the opposite way around. So that's what happened, you know, at, um, that's really what happened at, at Kenwood. Um, and so, you know, we, we reverse that from an aesthetic standpoint, you're right. I mean, um, you know, some people love the individual whole look, you know, this has become subjective, but most of the, you know, most of the classic golf courses and you can start rattling them off, you know, you would have this, you know, this beautiful view across a rolling piece of property. And you know, we didn't want to get rid of all of the trees. You know, if you went out there today, it still has a nice parkland look to it. Uh, you know, but on the flip side is, is that, I mean, they have such, for example, they have such a majestic clubhouse that, you know, thank God is it's never burned, you know, it's so many of the clubhouses of that era burned, you know, burned down or they've been changed and, and it's such a beautiful Tudor clubhouse, but you couldn't even see it. I mean, you couldn't even see it playing 18th hole. There were so many trees, let alone seeing it from many others. And so, you know, we we open that up. And so now it's just, you got, you feel like you're in a park. It's the reason why they call it parkland. You feel like you're in a park.
0: Well, it, it, again, just being able to look. And in addition to seeing the clubhouse, you're able to see features. It builds that anticipation. You see a green complex, two holes over and like, Oh God, how, what, what is that? What, you know, or a bunker or something like that. Um, the A couple of things specifically I wanted to ask you about. The closely mown areas, kind of between, you, you use that to tie in a couple of holes. Um, was that something that was original as far as you could tell? Was that to the era, the diddle era, or was that just something that, a design feature that just worked for the project for you guys? He,
1: he did have a lot of those. Uh, and so, you know, that was the, the sort of roll-offs and the expanded chipping areas. You know, that was a hallmark of what he had uh, at, you know, he didn't have, it wasn't called uh, Ken Dale or Ken View at the time. They were just two courses numbered one through 36. Um, but yes, I mean, we could tell by his plans and by some of the old photographs that he had, um, you know, not just a small strip, um, you know, a frog hair uh, or collar, uh, but that becomes part of the strategy to it uh, as well. And so you know, when the greens got, um, you know, expanded or you know, pushed back out to the original sizes, uh, you know, some of those edge hole locations are some of the most dangerous, uh, because if you miss on the wrong side, you know, the ball would then roll off of those tightly mown areas. Some cases, you know, it could be four or five, six yards. In some cases, it might be, you know, 15 to 20 yards even. Uh, and, you know, again, it's you're playing some of these holes and you really think about, okay, you know, where do I want to miss? Do I want to miss? You know, so again, it brings that strategic element back into it.
0: I loved it. I, I'm a watch the ball on the ground guy. That that's what is, you know, half the fun in golf for me. So I I was blown away with those, um, you know, the Kenwood is going to host a new, or I guess kind of a, a rejuvenated LPGA tournament this year, the queen city classic. Uh, I know a lot of people in our area, not exactly the Cincinnati Metro, but we're close enough to go up and watch uh, are excited about that. Um a couple of things on that. I want to get your impression on what viewers will see. Um, and is there, you mentioned that the the course had been linked into championship length. Was this something that was on the radar for the club as you guys were going through this process?
1: No, as a matter of fact, uh, I found about it. The exact day you found out <laughs> about it, To the very second Nice. <laughs> so, yes. Um, <laughs> and for your listeners, you know, uh, we had an opportunity to play in a, a, you know, in a in a media event that was put together, and so uh, somebody, maybe it was you, even even asked if that was a consideration given the championship pedigree. And now, uh, you know, and I had mentioned, I said, no. I said, matter of fact, you know, my business partner Dana Fry and I had asked that as we started the project. We said, you know, is this something that you are anticipating, you know, that you would like to you know, start to seek out championships once again? And the answer was emphatically and every single time. No, that's not something that we're interested in. Well, again, at that media event, somebody had asked that same question and I told them that exact same answer. <laughs> Well, the somewhat new general manager Dylan Petrick was sitting back behind me, and I just hear,
0: "Well," yeah. I remember, <laughs> that. I,
1: remember I turned and I said, "I go well, what, Dylan?" And he goes, "Well,
0: <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's in my opinion. This is completely subjective, but I think it's it's really great that they're bringing the ladies into play because what the the LPGA has been able to get on classic venues because the courses aren't too short for them. They're able to show off, yeah. you know, some of the the features. You think of what they've done at, I guess, is it Wilshire that they've gone to in LA. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, Inverness shined last year. It looked. It's right. an absolute rock star. It it has a pedigree that is tough to match anywhere. But the way that looked, that the the women were playing the shots that, you know, probably were how the course was designed. Just, I'm excited for that. And I was just curious with you guys if you have. If that affects design, it obviously didn't on this one because you didn't know it was coming in. But is that um, that playability for, you know, someone in that 66, 6,800 yard versus, you know, I don't know what even for. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. something is something that I don't want to play. Um, can you talk a little bit about how just in general in your design, how that has evolved over time? Because I don't know that we're a lot of people are asking for courses. Maybe egos are still designing course, you know, asking for courses to be championship courses, but it seems like the industry has gotten away from that a little bit in the last, uh, you know, 10, 12 years.
1: Well, I think part of that is probably just because of necessity. They just don't have the resources to be able to build or manage or remodel, you know, courses, you know, to that length. Uh, you know, I, so the one thing that I'm really excited about is that, you know, you had mentioned, uh, that Kent Turner, you know, who is the former director of golf, the superintendent, not director of golf, excuse me, director of agronomy and superintendent, uh, you know, had moved on to a new position. They brought in uh, a gentleman named Nate Herman. Nate, uh, you know, has come from a number of, you know, very high-end courses, including Victoria National, hosted a number of different, um, you know, uh, senior champions tour events, uh, you know, including some of their majors. And so, um, you know, when they were reaching out and doing interviews, that was one of the main things that they had focused on, um, you know, was ability to get a golf course now championship ready. And he certainly had that has that pedigree. That was one of the things, you know, because they had asked me then, you know, about, okay, if, you know, somebody new is coming in, what do we need to focus on? And I said, well, again, keep in mind, I go from a design agronomic standpoint, a number of different things. You know, there was never this intention to, you know, uh, host a major tournament, let alone literally within a year. Uh, And, you know, and so to their credit, they said, what do we need to do? And I said, you need to bring in somebody extraordinarily talented. And you need to listen to him and when he says i need this you need to give it to him you, you know, can't really question why you don't have that time because a lot of what needs to get done for the preparation of a tournament like this is really uh, you know fall based driven not like leading you know, a week or a month up into it uh you have to set the table ahead of time uh and he's been great you know um, we've had a great relationship uh you know within less than he didn't even really start full time and he and I met and drove the golf course, you know, a number of times. And, you know, his his comment was from an architectural standpoint, you know, I can see a lot of what you've done, really love it. But how do you want this to play? What is the intent? And, you know, David, you and I talked a lot about, you know, these chipping areas and keeping things firm and fast. And, you know, he said, OK, I get it. I understand. Which means, you know, I need to do you know X, Y and Z. And that's what I'm really looking forward to is because, you know, typically those things will take a little time to get it to play exactly the way that you anticipate. But, you know, the club, you know, they've made a commitment and they're going to hold to that commitment and they're going to really push forward hard, you know, to deliver these conditions, you know, to get the golf course to play in the exact intended way. So, you know, again, I'm super excited because, you know, he bought a, for example, he bought a machine called a Sandcat. Uh, you know, shout out to them, but it just it creates channel drainage in and around all of those tightly mown areas. That means that he's going to be able to really like firm them up, uh, you know, and keep them playing super firm, super fast and get them mowed down, uh, actually. And so it's you know, you're playing on that it's going to be approached, you know, not just a regular fairway cut. It's going to be approached. So you're going to start to see those shot premiums that, you know, come in, you know, really come into effect. And I'm, I can't I'm thrilled and excited to see you know how the best players in the world on the women's side, you know,
0: will handle and play that. Oh, well, that's exciting because, I you know, living in this mid-South, Midwest, my whole life, you know, approaches get they get a little bit soupy if you're not careful, just because right. we're, we're on mud and to keep them alive in the summer, you got to drown them. So that's that's exciting. That's going to be a feature that pays dividends for, you know, beyond even the, the championship, hosting the championship. Um, you guys have a lot of things kind of in the queue that are are, I've seen that you're getting good press about. I know the Union League uh, project in New Jersey has received quite a bit of press. Talk to me a little bit about that and why that project was so special for you guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was actually, it was on an old uh, old course that uh, our company had done back in the mid nineties, I guess it was. And so Union League of Philadelphia, for your listeners who doesn't know know what that is, it's actually uh, one of the oldest um, city clubs and athletic clubs and business clubs uh, in the country. And it was founded uh, during the Civil War to you know support Abraham Lincoln specifically and the war effort. You know, um, they have an they own an entire city block in uh, Center City, Philly. Uh, And, you know, but they offer an amazing array of amenities, you know, they have a world class gym, they have an inn that you can stay in, they have unbelievable restaurants, and they do everything at top of the class, you know, their CEO, Jeff McFadden is an incredible forward thinker and really considered to be one of the top two, three, you know, general manager CEOs in the golf industry period anywhere in the country in the world. Um, you know, he figured out long ago that, you know, one of the missing amenities that they didn't have was uh, was golf. And so they bought an old Donald Ross called Torsdale in the middle of, of Philly, you know, a few miles from the from the club there. And then he got thinking he's always thinking ahead. And he said, you know what, he goes, the vast majority of our members have summer homes down on the, you know, in the south shore of Jersey. they go to places like avalon and stone harbor so these are all communities that are south of atlantic city on the beach and he said you know would be really interesting from a business and an amenity standpoint if we had a golf facility that was close to there so they you know rather than building new um they started to scour for existing facilities um they found you know again one of our old ones they called us up and you know we're interested in you know talking about building a relationship i'll never forget david because we were out on site and he said, well, "We need to make a show." He goes, uh, "This is like the day after we got hired, week after we got hired." And he says, "I, you know, I know that you have a lot of planning to do." He goes, "But we want to start construction next week." <laughs> Dana and I looked at him and said, "Excuse us." <laughs> what do you mean? And he goes, "Well, we want to make sure that everybody understands our commitment, so you can go start all your planning, but we want to, you know, start construction next week." So it is a project unlike any that we have ever done um because yes I mean we had to do some general scale planning you know but the reality is the way that they had set it up you know we got all the permits and did all the things that we needed to do but the vast majority of it has really been built in the field I mean so I can't even I don't even know how many days that Dana and I have spent there um you know we've been working on this for literally four years now five years now oh wow uh and I mean it's um the massive you know it became interesting because one of the things that southern jersey doesn't have you start to ask them some of the better golf courses that are there and they're very good golf courses but it's very flat terrain they made a big commitment to actually create and do um, you know enough earth moving that we've created a lot of uphill downhill shots that that part of the country simply doesn't have the flip side of that is is that you do have a lot of disturbance um, to the environment and i said well then you know then the question becomes, what can we do to, you know, take it to a different level? We've already put in well over, well over a million native plants. So we took out all the exotics, uh, replanted, revegetated the entire thing to a, a plant palette. Working with uh, ecologists in that area, even modeled after Pine Valley. We went to Pine Valley and studied all their native plants and how they manage it. Uh, And so, I mean, it's we've emptied out most of the native nurseries in the Mid-Atlantic area at given times, just revegetating this golf course. Um, But it is it's really spectacular. You know, they've got a rock star uh, team there. Scott Bordner, who came from Chicago Golf Club, Uh, Pat Howie, who came from Marion. Uh, I mean, so from the from the golf
0: management, the agronomic management, you know, right on down, it is a rock star group of folks. Well, everything everything I've seen and this is goes against everything. I'm committed to you won the magazine cover. I mean the all the visuals that are that are out there that I've seen are just spectacular. So uh, best luck I hope it's received as well as as you you say it, it's designed. Um, get you out of here just real quick and you can't go home to the farm in Northeast Ohio. But um, if you had free time, if you could imagine a time when you actually had free time what are some of your favorite walks in golf? I'm not going to make you pick a favorite course or a favorite design that you did, but if you're just going a couple of clubs in the Sunday bag and you just wanted to go for a walk, if you had your choice, what are some of the places you might go?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you a, a couple of them. Uh, one of my favorite international was Lahinch. Hinch. Uh, I just became enthralled with it, uh, you know, and the, the crossing holes and then the, the Dell hole, which is a blind par three and, that opened up my eyes into, I guess, uh, different quirks that you can, can, you know, that people have done there, uh, you know, especially in GBI, Great Britain, Ireland, that people steered away from here. But, you know, there's a lot of ambiance and charm uh, to so many of the golf courses that are there and, you know, things that people would, you know, espouse not to do here, but I find incredibly intriguing, um, you know, and so when given some leeway, it opens up your eyes of what you can try and what you can do. So um, that would be one, one place. Um, I would say uh, from uh, a walk in the park. I love Shinnecock. You know that's one of my favorite uh, to play. Uh, again, some quirky things in that they, you're hitting across roads multiple times. Um, but I just love the 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 environment, the view out across uh, you know the golf course and the different colors and textures and heights and the shot variety that you're um, really demanded to hit. Um, from a personal standpoint. uh, Simple course, place called Yankee Run. It is in Northeast Ohio. You know, it's not necessarily on a a lot of people's radars, unless you live in Western PA or that part of Ohio. Um, You know, multi-generational family golf course, McMullen family. You know, that's where one of the courses I grew up playing and played my high school career. And uh, if nothing else, um, I have lifelong friendships that I developed there. And Uh, You know, years of walking with my dad and hearing the clubs clink in your bag, uh, you know, that's uh, if there was ever a special place just to go play one last round of golf, that would be the place.
0: Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots podcast. As you heard, Jason is as down to earth and genuinely nice in person as he was gracious with his time for this interview. A uh, little cleanup, one feature at Kenwood's Kindale course that I'm terrified that I forgot to circle back to in our discussion was perhaps my favorite feature of the entire remodeled course complex, the 18th green. It's not simply a massive green designed to accept shots from distance on the difficult closing par 4. That's a design task all on its own. But this one also doubles as the practice green for the whole Kindale course. I've never seen anything like it. It's a gigantic beer Ritz style green with the front lower portion serving as the 18th green and the upper section closest to the clubhouse serving as the practice green. The last place to warm up before heading off down the adjacent first fairway. It's spectacular. Of course, it's divided by the signature beer Ritz dip, a deep valley in between the two uh, shelves that I just discussed. I hope one day that the Greens Committee lets the superintendent put the 18th pin back on that back shelf, maybe as a part of a formal club competition or a, a tournament that the club hosts. I'll post a picture or two of the 18th Green on the website for this episode over at OneBeardedGolfer.com. Be sure to check it out. Also, remember to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this year podcast, an angel makes another bowl of chili without cinnamon or noodles in it. Hope you've enjoyed what you've heard here today. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now, but I will at least try to do better next time. And I hope you will join me next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, stay safe, be smart, remember to hydrate throughout these cold days. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. First winter there, he didn't see his car for two months and he was unprepared for that.
1: So I had to laugh because I think it was the year, last year I was there, maybe the second to last year, and we had a gargantuan blizzard. And it was the first time in like a hundred years that the school had closed, you know, for any sort of weather-related event. And, and it was so much snow, he said the cars are buried and we were kids are on mattresses going down the hill. <laughs> <laughs>